This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio. The title of the book, A Sojourn Among the Avatars of Wisdom, and the author is Dudley Meekum. And Dudley joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dudley. Hi, Steve. Great to have you with us, Dudley. We're going to talk about this action-adventure, as you call it, even though it has lots of uh, different elements than most adventures because you're going to throw in lots of nuggets of wisdom and a little bit of a fantasy, but we'll get into those details in a moment. Let me read what you've written about your book. You say this, Guided by the wisdom of the ages, an astronaut competes in a tournament to become a knight. And he begins an epic adventure that will change his life forever. So, kind of uh, modern because we're dealing with an astronaut to the International Space Station. Yes, he makes a journey up from the space shuttle and rendezvous with the International Space Station and is scheduled to perform some duties. Scheduled to perform some duties, and then, of course, the unexpected happens. Before we get into the unexpected, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you wrote the book. I wrote the book as a gift to my younger self because I didn't experience as much success as my colleagues or people my age. So I figured that my younger self would probably need not my wisdom, but the wisdom of the world's greatest sages. And what I do is I provide the connective tissue that that weaves all that logic or wisdom together. Very interesting. So you, through your life experiences, uh, some uh, wisdom quotes that ring true with you included those into this story. Yes. Things that really resonated with you, things that you needed. That's correct. All right. Very good. Well, I'm sure they're universally needed. Many of us, uh, life is filled with all kinds of challenges. So let's talk about Chris Cole and the the challenges that he is facing. As we already mentioned, he's an astronaut and he goes up to the International Space Station. I guess, uh, is this his first time? It is indeed. So he's got a lot of a lot of different feelings about this. Right, it's a once in a lifetime journey for him. Once in a lifetime journey. And what happens? Things go wrong, he returns to earth. He c- could not return to the the original location where he took off from, so he lands at Edwards Air Force Base in California and then eventually goes to kill a day until his return flight the next day, he journeys to a medieval fair where the king unexpectedly selects him as a contestant in a medieval tournament. So this tournament is real? 
It is at the at the medieval fair, yes. Yes, so he has to learn to do what? He needs to learn how to wield a longsword, but really it's a it's a padded longsword, so he won't do damage to himself or or hurt other people, other contestants. But behind the scenes, there's much more going on. Yes, enemies coalesce to thwart him, and they pretty much succeed at different points during the book, but... A cast of colorful characters guide him on the, on the correct path, using using the wisdom of the world's greatest sages verbatim. So, why would these enemies? What made them his enemies? The, the wizard said that for him to proceed in this training, for him to introduce Chris Cole to a friend of the wizard's, that he had to overcome one of his fears. And one of his fears, which happens to be pretty much everyone's fear, the number one fear, is public speaking. And that, in fact, happens to be worse than the fear of dying. But during the course of giving a speech, he, he did so from the perch where the jester usually gives his speech. So he immediately made an enemy right there on the spot. So the jester, in turn, leads his forces against Chris and... It's a, it's a long day for Chris Cole. So this jester is uh, one of the main characters? Yes, he is. Well, tell us a little bit about him. As a jester, he knows how to make fun of people, and he becomes so good at it that really Chris Cole is an easy target for him, and it doesn't take much effort on the part of the jesters to just dissuade Chris to, to continue in this contest. So he, when his... His verbal uh, arrows don't do the trick. Then he enlists other people to physically dissuade Chris from carrying on with the tournament. I guess we all have jesters in our lives, don't we? We already we all have that jester who wants to make fun of us. Yes, and and perhaps the jester in our own mind might be that that person. Very well. Yes, in our own mind and. The wizard must play an important role here? Yeah, he plays an important role. He's one of a cast of supporting characters, but he definitely lifts Chris off his, off of his feet first and then introduces him to other people who in turn help Chris Cole as well. So this medieval fair, this tournament, really is more about real life than some kind of fantasy. You could look at it that way, of course. Yes, at some point in your life, you're not prepared for the the conflict that you enter, and you turn uh, turn to the advice of others for help. And I would imagine that the advice of the world's greatest sages would probably trump uh, person A or person B. Now, this advice from the world's greatest philosophers and sages. What is the what is their role here? What uh, how do you work that into this whole story theme, the plot? In fact, you even called it the writing your book was like uh, a Rubik's cube. Yes, because the the advice has to be solicited. Therefore, the protagonist has to be laid low many times during the story. And I had to decide which character was going to say which pearls of wisdom 
in which order and in which scene. So I had to keep moving the advice around among the different characters and in different scenes to make it work. Because setting up setting up solicited advice is a bit like setting up a joke. You just can't lob the punchline in there anywhere. It has to it has to flow naturally. Timing is everything. Yes. And I guess the same with how we use wisdom. Timing is everything. Of course. We have to be ready to accept it. Absolutely. And that usually takes place when not when things are going well, but when things are not going well. You write that Chris really has created a prison of his own making. Now, how do you explain that? When he was young, he he got into a fight and was knocked out. And according to Chris, the only only thing worse than that happening is is death. So he takes that incident and carries it with him for the rest of his life, or at least until he meets the current char- cast of characters. And because he's a more of a technical kind of guy, more of an engineer, he doesn't really excel in the physical aspects of life. And in that respect, that's that's his prison, as he can't can't do well physically. And through every the cast of characters' wisdom, those those characters are able to change Chris's mind. Does he have a friend that really, who really helps him? I try to make it so that everyone helps him pretty much equally. It, it would, if it were just one person, it would, people would lose interest in the story. Dudley, we've been mentioning words of wisdom from these philosophers and from sages. Why don't you give us some of these, this wisdom that you included in this storyline? One of the quotes goes as follows. Iron rusts from disuse, stagnant water loses its purity, and in cold weather becomes frozen. Even so does inaction sap the vigor of the mind. That was said by Leonardo da Vinci. So these quotes, these words of wisdom, they're very deep. Yes, they are. Are they all like the one you just read, or do they have that kind of style? Yes, they are a paternal tone, so that you don't need to make the same mistake that it, it's already pointing you in the right direction. It can save you time as a reader. A very unique literary style because of those who shared this kind of wisdom, but at the same time, directly to the point. Yes. Please share another one. The next one goes as follows. All successful men have agreed in one thing. They were causationists. They believed that things went not by luck, but by law that there was not a weak or cracked link in the chain that joins the first and last of things. That was said by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Obviously, well-known philosophers that you have shared with us. We've been talking with Dudley Meekham. He's the author of his book, A Sojourn Among the Avatars of Wisdom. Dudley, what's the best way to get your book? You can obtain a copy through Amazon.com or through my website, www. DudleyMeekham.com And I watched a YouTube trailer on your book. Hopefully it was entertaining. Yes, and tell our listeners how they can watch. They can go to YouTube and type in the words Dudley Meekham. Last name is spelled M-E-C. 
C-U-M. Thank you so much, Dudley, for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thanks for having me, Steve. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled York Street, a ghost and a cop series. And joining me from Iowa in the United States is author Jan Walters. Thank you for joining me today, Jan. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Well, you have a, a, a unique background and perspective on the um, on the law enforcement community. Your grandfather, if I uh, understand it correctly, was involved in law enforcement. This book is also set in Des Moines, Iowa, which is a little unique. Share with me how you became motivated to write this book, York Street. Well, my um, I have four generations of men in my family that have either served or currently serving on the Des Moines Police Department, and my son is currently serving. And so my great-grandfather and my great-great-grandfather um, have served on the Des Moines Police Department. Uh, my great-grandfather was chief of detectives and chief of police back in the 1940s. Incredible. Did you hear stories about the uh, investigations that they were doing at that time as you were growing up, or how did you come in contact with the the genre of, uh, of cop series? Well, my grandmother, um, she, uh, you know, the daughter of the chief of police. Yes. I grew up with her telling me all kinds of stories um, about it. Back in the 1920s, there really was a cat burglar here in Des Moines, and that was the term they used. And um, the women who stayed home at that time were really frightened because mm. of this burglar breaking into homes during the daytime, which was unusual. Now, when you say cat burglar, are you talking about felines, or actually that is just a generation term, uh, cat burglar? I think I know the it answer to that. It was a but... <laughs> generation term. <laughs> right. So it was a, it was a man they breaking sneaky. into the homes. Sneaky to describe their, their techniques. Yes, yes. And so... Um, my grandmother thought it would be funny to come home from school early one afternoon and scare her mother. <laughs> and so she crept up the stairs to the upstairs, and my grandmother jumped out with a thirty-eight revolver Oops. in her hand. And luckily, nobody was killed. But I... 
So I've grown up hearing all kinds of stories uh, about the police department. And then, of course, having my husband be on the police department and now my son. Uh, I often wondered if my great-grandfather were alive today, um, what would he think about his, you know, great-great-grandson who is now serving? And so that kind of formed the basis for the Ghosts in the Cops series. Is this a particular uh, edition, which is your second book, if I understand it correctly, is this a, uh, a composite storytelling of uh, multiple things that have happened in your family's history related to uh, police work, or is it one that totally came out of your imagination? It is based on some actual events, but uh, because it has a strong paranormal element, um, it is mostly fiction. Okay, mostly fiction, 288 pages. When you began to write this, was there a specific target, uh, not an audience, but a target story in mind? Did you already have a, an outline that you, you felt uh, might be able to be fleshed out into an exciting adventure and uh, story? I did. Um, my The basis for the story is you've got this very serious cop, uh, Brett O'Shea, who is trying to make detective like his deceased uh, grandfather, who was murdered back in 1933. Mm. And so Brett, being the young cop, he's very serious. He looks at the world in black and white, you know, good versus, versus bad. And um, doesn't believe in hocus-pocus, paranormal, anything. And so his world is kind of shaken up when this ghost appears um, and basically announces that he's been sent to help Brett catch a serial killer in Des Moines. And so, first of all, Brett, you know, it's a big leap for him to even believe that this ghost is real and has been sent to help him catch a serial killer when he's not even a detective at that point. Mm-hmm. And... The ghost personality is very different than Brett's. The ghost is kind of a mm, smart, Alec, uh, prankster type of guy, kind of irreverent. Right. And so you have this personality clash of these two strong individuals who are, you know, the kind of the key protagonists of the story. So the story kind of kicks off from there. and they have to figure out how to work together to catch the serial killer, who they also learn in the course of their investigation has supernatural abilities. So they're not dealing with a a normal human being not as, a far, typical, as far as the killer. Not a typical case. You, you, As you began to write this, and uh, 288 pages is an ambitious uh, project, at least from my perspective. I have a short attention span, and two or three pages <laughs> would be all I could complete. How long did it take you to completely uh, finish this story and get it ready for press? Well, it took me about a year. Um, I pretty much knew where I was going with the story, Um I knew my characters. I mean, I had kind of using some of my own relatives as uh, models, so to speak, as far as personality was concerned. Yes. I knew my characters. I knew what I wanted to do. Um, it's 
York Street is um, it's not a typical cop detective story. It leans more toward the paranormal, and it's fast-paced, and it has what I would call gruesome detail, but also some rather humorous moments in it. Fabulous. Uh, you have then some action scenes that uh, might really stand out to the to the reader. Is there one that you'd like to share with us, one that you absolutely immersed yourself into and loved writing? Um, yes. Um, one of the key action scenes um, deals with Brett O'Shea and um, the ghost uh, who have partnered with the chief of detectives. His name is Anders, Terry Anders. And Terry Anders um, is an older man in his 50s. He's kind of taken Brett O'Shea under his wing, so to speak. And so they're tracking down the serial killer and they're uh, searching a home of a murdered woman and her property. And uh, because this has paranormal elements in it, um, Brett's walking along and he kind of spots a, you know, just an old pitchfork laying on the ground, thinking nothing of it, until the pitchfork begins to levitate mm-hmm. and <laughs> kind of comes shooting across the lawn toward him. And um, thanks to the ghost's interference and help, you know, he's not killed. And uh, so. Again, for a serious cop who doesn't believe in hocus pocus and the paranormal, you know, if you can imagine his facial expressions, his thoughts at that moment that a pitchfork is flying through the air at him. Uh, yeah, so there, there's some, you know, that's kind of humorous, but yes, very suspenseful at the same time. Oh, it sounds as though this might even be adaptable to a movie plot. I mean, I, I love the way you've described it. There's, I love the humor and and, uh, and also the seriousness that you have included in the uh, the way you've described that. Would you call this book more of an entertainment read, a fast-paced entertainment read, or is there a, a serious intent be- beyond that? There, it, it's kind of, it's balanced, I think. It, it does have its serious uh, moments and, you know, when people die and the gruesomeness of cases that, you know, real life cops have to deal with. Um, I also go into a little bit of detail of what a routine night for a street cop would be like as far as dealing with, you know, speeders and kids out for a good time Mm -hmm. and things like that. So it's trying, trying to show a balance of what a cop's life is really like, but yet bring it, that twist of the paranormal world um, and what would cops do if they had to face that. So it kind of puts our hero, Brett O'Shea, in that position. Like, gosh, if there really was a, a paranormal you know, serial killer here in Des Moines, what would he do and what, how would he would react he to it? You've subtitled this a ghost and a cop series. Is the other book also subtitled a ghost and a cop series? The one that will be coming out in 216 is, yes, it's the, it's a kind of the second book in the series. Wonderful. And um, the, the first book is Believe, and it's more of a traditional romance time travel novel. Mm. 
You mentioned Des Moines, and you live in Iowa. Have any of the officers in the city of Des Moines, have they been able to uh, peruse your book and give any kind of feedback, or has anyone else that's in that profession uh, looked at your book? Yes, um, they have. Um, Before York Street was actually published, I took my manuscript to uh, Bill McCarthy, who is currently the Polk County Sheriff in the Des Moines area. He was the former Des Moines police chief for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. And so I approached him and asked if he would read the manuscript, give me his thoughts, good or bad. And he really enjoyed it. He, what he really liked about it was he thought that it really kind of presented a real-life cop story, you know, a street cop's job right. and viewpoint. Des Moines, Iowa is a unique setting for a fictional piece. Not many books have been written that included the city of Des Moines. Are you finding from your readers that this is considered unique? Yeah, it it probably is. I, I don't know the actual count, um, but having the history with the Des Moines Police Department, you know, this is where my roots were and where I wanted to have this story take place. Because as the series evolves, readers will see the kind of development of a paranormal unit within the Des Moines Police Department. So for whatever reason, um, our hero, Brett O'Shea, seems to draw these paranormal entities to Des Moines, and he has to figure out a way of how to catch them and eliminate them. Describe for my listeners the ideal reader from your perspective. Is this something that a teenager, young child should read, or is this a little older reader? You know, this would probably be okay for, you know, I would say 16 on up. Um, As far as there's a couple of graphical murder scenes. Mm -hmm. Other than that, it's more suspenseful. Um, language, I would say, is not bad. And as far as um, sexual scenes, it's very minimal in these books. So romance plays a smaller part. Mm-hmm. So it's more the it's more the mystery, the suspense, with the paranormal. The title of the book, again, is York Street, A Ghost and a Cop Series. My guest author has been Jan Walters. Jan, I know some of my listeners will want to get a copy of this and uh, also keep in touch. How do they do so? The book is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and lots of other websites. And it's available in ebook, paperback. And you can also find out uh, the upcoming books on my website, which is www.authorjanwalters.com. Excellent. Jan, you mentioned you have a second book coming. Uh, you have not mentioned the title yet. What is that? The next book in the Ghosts in the Cop series is titled Red Sunset Drive. Red Sunset Drive. Is it also set in Iowa, in Des Moines? It is. Excellent. Find something that works, stick with it.
That's right. <laughs> Enjoyed visiting with you. This is a nice teaser to get people interested. Hopefully, they'll buy lots and lots of books and help you progress as a, an author. The title again, York Street, a ghost and cop series. My guest author, Jan Walters. Thank you, Jan, for joining me today from Iowa in the United States. I uh, hope you have a great and successful career and look forward to visiting with you in the future. Thank you very much. My pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Do you ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing. More joy and less judgment. You're not alone. Come to The Living Room, a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We're saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Truth and Consequences. And joining me from near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, is our author, Ralph E. Carlson. Dr. Carlson, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jay. This looks like a complicated read. I understand you have a background in mathematics and analytics. What would you say is the general theme of truth and consequences? Well, uh, I, I'm a former professor of mathematics at Gerson College, and uh, the idea behind this is that we look at statements, uh, which we can call propositions, and those propositions have a truth value. They're either true or they're false, and then look at some of the consequences if the proposition is true or if the proposition is false. So that's a different approach to the basic subject that this book covers. And uh, I, I just came up with that. And uh, uh, what prompted this whole book was about nine years ago, the Center for Vision and Values at Grove City College held a conference on creationism, intelligent design, and evolution. Mm-hmm. And I attended that conference and got really interested in those topics and ended up reading about a dozen books on them. And uh, one of the things I came up with was the evolutionists claim that all life has evolved from simple life forms over millions of years, and they are very adamant that this claim has been proven to be a scientific fact. Right. And in reading those books, uh, I, I discovered two well-known deficiencies in their so-called proof, and that is that they have no explanation for the origin of life, which is necessary to start the evolutionary process. And secondly, the fossil record does not support the existence of the many transitional species that would be necessary to transform from simple life forms to the complex life forms we have on Earth today. But as a professor of mathematics, one thing that I constantly emphasize in my classes is when you're trying to prove a statement, you have to use logically correct arguments in that proof. Right. 
And I discovered that the evolutionists do not use a logically correct argument in their so-called proof. And that's to illustrate that, or to, I, I use an example from Major League Baseball, but to explain that, consider the following two statements. Statement one, two species have a common ancestor. Statement number two, two species have common characteristics, such as molecular genetics. Mm-hmm. Now, if statement one is true, then statement two is true, and science has proven that. So if two species have a common ancestor, they have common characteristics, such as molecular genetics. But their so-called proof reverses that argument. Their proof states that if two species have common characteristics, such as molecular genetics, that proves that they have a common ancestor. Okay. And that is not logically correct. So look at uh, the following example. The Phillies beat the Cubs. Statement number one. Statement number two, the Phillies scored at least one run. Well, if the Phillies beat the Cubs, then the Phillies had to score at least one run by the rules of Major League Baseball. However, using the approach that the evolutionists use, they would reverse that. If the Phillies scored at least one run, then the Phillies, that proves the Phillies beat the Cubs. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that back in 1922, the Phillies scored 23 runs and still lost to the Cubs 26-23. Interesting. Now, now what, what uh, I looked at, you know, creationism, intelligent design, and evolution are approaches to answering two questions that are closely related. The first question is, does God exist? The second question is, what is the source of life on Earth, and in particular, human life? And the approaches to answering that are creationism, intelligent design, and evolution. Well, I came up with the idea of transforming those questions into propositions, which are statements that are either true or false, and then analyze some of the consequences of their respective truth values. So because there are so many interpretations of God, uh, I transform the first question into there's an infinite intelligent entity. If that's false, what are the consequences? Well, every religion that believes in an infinite intelligent entity, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, would be false. If that's true, then that leads to transforming the second question, what is the origin of life on Earth, and in particular human life, into the proposition, the infinite intelligent entity created life on Earth, and in particular human life. If that's false, then there's no inherent relationship between that entity and human beings. If that's true, so if both of those tr- propositions are true, that leads to a third proposition, is life after death. If that's false, then you really want to ask the question, why did that entity create life on Earth, and in particular human life, in the first place? If that's true, so if all three propositions are true, that leads to a fourth proposition. Jesus, as described in the New Testament, lived some 2,000 years ago. If that's false, Christianity is not a valid religion. Now, if all four propositions are true, then 
I look at evidence that God exists and is active in the world today. And I cite some circumstantial evidence. And I also cite the experiences of three people that I know personally. And their experiences can be summed up with the words, undeniable prevails over inexplicable. And uh, I don't want to go into the three particular Sure. Your your design on the book, then, is uh, very similar to an attorney presenting his case. Yeah, I guess it would be. I don't didn't think of it that way, but uh, I guess that might might well be true. There's a logic. There's a logic to to faith from your perspective and what you have shared in your book. Oh, absolutely, yes. And who do you hope to to connect with on your book? Would you consider it a difficult read, or is this one for the thinking man who is not you know not ruled by his emotion or her emotions? I, I don't think it's that particularly difficult of a book. I try to explain things in, in words that, you know, a non-mathematician or a non-legal scholar um, could understand. And uh, I, I've had some good feedback on it. But it was very understandable. And it was a different approach and that a lot of people appreciate it. You have, you have approached this differently. You didn't set out to disprove uh, creationism necessarily or to, or to prove it. Uh, how did you? What was your 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 style or your type of uh, of approach? Well, uh, as I said, I, I decided it was very difficult to prove scientifically creationism, intelligent design, or evolution. And uh, this other approach says, okay, if we can't prove it, what can we understand about it by looking at consequences if these statements are true or if these statements are false and. I think if you look at that, and you, you, you have to have faith to believe one way or the other, that uh, if you do believe in these, these propositions are true, then you really uh, want to strengthen your faith, and you want to really uh, serve God. Absolutely. You have 109 pages total in your book, so it's not a very lengthy read, but it outlines some very positive and provocative arguments. And part of it that you have approached is that you feel perhaps, or maybe as a believer, that there's a threat to Christianity. How does that come about? What's happening in our world today that is a threat well, I, I cite a number of examples looking at America, uh, threats to Christianity in this country, and uh, there's many of them. And then I look at Jonathan Kahn and what he said. Now, Jonathan Kahn looks at what happened to ancient Israel thousands of years ago. They were invaded by Assyria, and Assyria was winning, and then they suddenly backed off, and after they backed off, the prophets warned the Israelites, you've got to repent or face destruction, because yeah. Israel had fallen away from the promises that God made to them and the, the responsibilities that they had in response to that. And 10 years later, Assyria again invaded Israel, conquered them, and exiled many of the Israelites to other parts of the Middle East. Well, Jonathan Kahn looks at that, and then he compares that 
to what happened in the United States on 9-11. And he cites nine aspects of the, what happened to ancient Israel that are very closely paralleled with what happened on 9-11 in the United States. So... And he's a, he, he, and Jonathan Kahn, just for those who don't know of him, he is uh, he can be searched out online. He is actually a rabbi, has a Jewish faith background, and uh, would be com- called by some an evangelical Jew. He has a, 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 an overview of um, perspective of Israel, of prophecy, and end-time events, for those who know what that means, uh, that's different from most out there that are speaking out in our society. That's correct. And uh, that leads me to the fifth proposition, that the 9-11 attack was a warning by God to the United States to repent or face destruction. And that is a very scary thing. And uh, if you look at what happened shortly after 9-11, there was an attempt at a revival in the United States, and people were, um, you know, concerned about that. And it didn't last too long, and uh, we're still faced with a lot of problems in the United States about attacks on Christianity in particular. Absolutely. There is a, an outright attack. Those of my listeners who are people of faith, you know that the church and ministers, especially in the Judeo-Christian faiths, are under attack. Now, you have titled this Truth and Consequences, so there is uh, not only the the layout of at least the implications of creationism uh, versus evolution. What are you hoping will happen to the reader once he or she gets a hold of your book? What is your goal? Well, if if they're non-Christians, I want them to start thinking about what is said in there and thinking about God and hopefully becoming more open to uh, worshiping and learning more and uh, becoming a Christian. If they're already a Christian, I, I want to get them thinking about some of these subjects and hopefully uh, they will be stronger in their faith and uh, also reach out to other people. How long, did it, how long did it take you, Dr. Carlson, to complete this, this book, and do you have another one in the future? I took, well, I started this conference I referred to uh, was about nine years ago at uh, Grove City College, and uh, I spent a lot of time reading about these things, and then I kept getting these ideas, which I happened to think were messages from God to, to look at this, like, for example, transforming the questions into propositions and then analyzing the truth values of those. And uh, after the first two propositions, you know, where do I go from there? And I got to his life after death, and then that led to Jesus, as described in the New Testament, lived some 2,000 years ago. And uh, there's some pretty strong evidence of that. And um, one one thing, uh, Hugh Ross is an astronomer, and I cite something related to his work. He has a, a list of 128 parameters that must lie in a very, each one of which must lie in a very narrow range in order for a planet to support human life, or not just human life, animal life, or even life in general. Yes. And he looks at the probability that all 128 parameters lie in these appropriate intervals so that life could exist. 
and he estimates the probability of that to be 1 divided by 10 to the 166th power. Now, to get an idea of what that probability would mean is people are familiar with the Powerball lottery. Mm -hmm. It would be equivalent, or approximately equivalent, to winning the Powerball lottery 20 times. Incredible. Buying one ticket each time. And he also estimates that there are 10 to the 22 planets in the universe. So the probability of one of those planets satisfying these 128 parameters, uh, you know, in the narrow ranges possible for life would be equivalent to winning the Powerball lottery 17 times buying one ticket each time. Amazing. Now, if somebody won the Powerball lottery twice, would anybody think that was a coincidence? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. I don't think so. So, now, we know that there's one planet that supports life. So, using his figures, the probability of that is so small that it didn't happen by accident that this planet was uh, created by a creator. And that uh, that's pretty strong evidence. If he's, even if he's off by trillions... Um, you know, this planet doesn't exist by coincidence. Phenomenal. There's also, a, th- those that do study of Old Testament scripture and uh, related to the coming of Jesus Christ also will find there's about 125 prophecies, specific prophecies related to his first coming, and uh, the infinite possibilities of some human recreating that or perfecting that when there was a little education and universities were very rare is uh, is also infinitesimal and uh, i mean yes. just just impossible for a human in his own intellect to create that uh you can tell which side of the uh, the aisle i might sit on the title <laughs> of this book is truth and Cons- and and consequences my guest has been dr ralph e carlson dr carlson where do we get copies of your book uh you can Actually, I can send you one if you email me and uh, send a check-in for $15. Uh, well, you can email me at recarlson.tcc.edu, uh, Grove City College. Uh, I still have my email address there. Uh, and you can send your address, and I can send you tell you where to send a check for $15, and you can get it. Or else you can get it at uh, Amazon or at uh, the publisher iUniverse. Excellent. And I think, do you have a website that's uh, been developed yet? Yes. It's uh, Carlson Book, www.carlsonbook.com. Phenomenal. Thank you for joining me today and sharing your insight. Uh, I hope to hear from you in the future with maybe a follow-up book, and it's been a pleasure visiting with you. Well, thank you very much, John. It's been a pleasure talking to you. My pleasure for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.